Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Encrypted, a podcast that is dedicated to guide you through the blockchain and crypto universe. My name is Ahmed al Balaghi and I'm coming to you live from the amazing Area 2071 space in the Emirates Towers right here in Dubai. I am also virtually joined by my colleague and co-host Aniket Jindal. Aniket, say hi and say where, where you are based now. Hello, everyone. This is Anigit here. I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast and uh, share what we have learned so far in blockchain industry with all of you guys. I'm currently based out of India, actually uh, speaking from a city called Chandigarh. Uh, it's like one of the cleanest cities in India. And we are just ready to uh, launch our first podcast. So, Ahmed, let's get started. Awesome. I'm going to quickly introduce myself. So my name is Ahmed Al Balaghi. I've been in Dubai for the past seven, eight months working on a crypto exchange project and also been busy working on um, investment analysis with, with Iniket and a few other partners. And before that, I was in China. I was there for, for two years. I was in Shanghai actually learning Chinese um, during my time there. And when I was there, that's when I actually got into the blockchain industry. Um, I remember the meetups that were attended had only around like 10 people, 10 to 15 people uh, back in mid-2016. It was really funny now seeing sort of two years on how big the meetups are becoming. I then became a blockchain researcher at a Chinese startup called Bufin in Shanghai and really helped to build the community. When I was um, at Fudan University, as me and Aniket co-founded the first blockchain association in Asia. So yeah, how about you, Aniket? Let's let's hear an introduction from you. Yeah, so my entry into crypto is quite funny. Uh, in 2016, I came to China to uh, pursue my master's in international business. It was a dual degree course between MIT Sloan and Fudan University. And I think the very first month of my entry into China, I ended up being in a meetup uh, organized uh, by this guy, Ahmed. Uh, so after the meetup, we ended up talking about blockchain and Bitcoin. Uh, it was uh, it was going all over my head because I was totally blank and I had no prior experience in Bitcoin blockchain. And it seemed more like a scam to me at that time. But yeah, see where I am right now, like totally involved in blockchain. So what happened was that after the meetup, I just went back and started reading about it. And uh, this this Bitcoin and blockchain uh, technology, it just tickled my mind. And I ended up having endless talking with Ahmed and other people in the industry. Uh, started researching more about it. And we, as Ahmed told, we started an association together yeah, after that, I started working for a few companies such as Metaverse, Binance, and Nucleus Fission. Lately, I, Ahmed, and a few of our own uh, other other friends, we started uh, researching together and investing together in projects. So we've been working together for about four to five months now, and we are all together uh, investing and researching on projects. Great stuff. So this this podcast is actually sort of a continuation of the work that we, we've been doing and we thought it would be a good idea to start off a podcast, to share our experiences, document them as well. And we've also realized in sort of in the past two years of going to conferences around the world, 
we realized that the best conversations that happen are post conference and the ones that really that that happen you know in, in the cafes or in the bars the idea is to sort of capture those moments and capture those those conversations by inviting our network and inviting um, special guests to the podcast and we'll be definitely having special interviews discussing um, recent trends and developments within the industry in order for people to um, understand in simple terms what is actually going on and since also I'm based in Dubai I'm really really looking forward to actually interviewing a lot of the uh, people who are helping the Dubai strategy the Dubai blockchain strategy um, and make it a realization because there's a lot of hype here in Dubai about blockchain but not many people really know what's going on so the idea is to sort of expose to the world what Dubai is actually doing so we'll definitely be having many many episodes regarding that um, down the line this is our first episode and we were actually thinking and discussing okay what what are we going to talk about are we going to analyze a project are we going to talk about a recent trend are we going to talk about the news but then um, the other day, I actually was sitting in a presentation here in Dubai, and I, I saw one of the slides said that what we never had ten years ago, and among the list of six, one of them, for example, was Uber. Bitcoin was on that list. That made me think, wow, Bitcoin is what nearly ten years old, and that's pretty crazy. That's a pretty big achievement. So we thought, you know, why not the first episode of encrypted talk about bitcoin to to go back to basics to understand you know to remind ourselves what it tried to do to look at you know its achievements its downfalls and the setbacks that it's had and also you know what it's garnered over the years as well and you get you you've always mentioned that you've had sort of a likening to Bitcoin because of a certain few aspects. Yeah. Uh, so Bitcoin, uh, of course, as you said, it's been 10 years and it's pretty crazy that we are still uh, right now. I mean, Bitcoin has been talk of every other news channel these days. So uh, the 10 years of Bitcoin history is uh, full of different phases, full of good and bad moments. Uh, but my fascination towards Bitcoin has always been towards uh, the freedom I get of uh, using the money wherever, whenever I want to, without even asking a third party, for example, bank. So, yeah, just like for a very simple example that if I have to transfer money to you, uh, I have to go through a hell lot of processes, you know. First of all, I'm just going to tell my bank, okay, I want to send $10 to Ahmed. So banks going to contact your bank and your bank's going to contact you. And this is how you're going to get the money. And so here, like a lot of middlemen are involved in between. So this adds uh, to a layer of complication. So you always take it for granted that, of course, like for something like this, you always have to go to bank. But with Bitcoin, uh, this is something you, you're the one who's controlling everything. Uh, so like just from my stories and from what I've experienced. So recently I was in China and, um, I was, I was short of money. So yeah, I had Bitcoin with me and I actually use Bitcoin to cover all my expenses in China without even like approaching the bank. So I just like cashed my Bitcoin and I, I spent a week in China just, just like taking control of the, of my own journey just just by myself only so this is what i get from bitcoin and this is 
what uh, gonna change the world in the next few years exactly and i think it's it's great that the the fact that you were able to actually use um bitcoin because a lot of people have been saying is there actually actually any useful cryptocurrency other than um what a lot of people perceive cryptocurrency to be used in um useful drugs and um on the ground marketplaces but it's great to see that you you've been using it um in your travels to china so for those of you who are tuning into the show who are just starting to learn about bitcoin and who are just looking into it let's actually delve a bit more into what it actually is and um how it came about so back in 2008 somebody came online and published a white paper his name was Satoshi Nakamoto we have no idea who this person is actually it could be a male it could be a female um it could be a group um could be an alien we have no idea and he basically proposed a new payment system he proposed a new way of doing things and try to challenge the status quo through economics cryptography and computer science and the the bitcoin software actually is also open source which we'll go into a bit later but essentially what it means is is that it's open for anyone to come in to download and to use so to explain bitcoin um quickly i i want to give sort of two analogies the first analogy is something that i saw on coindesk it's a really cool article i will we'll post a link in the show notes and i really like uh, the analogy that they've put and they basically said okay um there are two people right so me and aniket i have an apple in my hand and i now give the apple to aniket now we were both there we both know that the apple that i just had in my hand i have given it to him uh, physically we know that we both made the transfer and we do not need anyone else a third party a brother or a friend or anyone to actually come in and to say yes this this thing happened we both know that once i gave the apple to aniket the apple is now his and so this could be the same thing with anything really it could be an apple it could be a dollar note it could be anything now let's say that i was sending aniket a digital apple right so let's say for example it's a picture online and i'll sending him a digital apple now this gets a bit interesting because once i send him that digital apple which used to be mine how can i ensure or how could anikit ensure that that digital apple is now his and only his right so if you think about that for a second it becomes very interesting because the thing is how does anikit know that i did not make a million copies of that digital apple or how i um how did you make sure that i didn't send it to somebody else before i sent it to him this is when digital things um become very interesting because if you were to start applying money into this it becomes complicated right and this digital exchange becomes a bit of a problem and so this problem is actually called the double spending problem and this is what satoshi nakamoto went and tried to solve how can i solve the double spending problem using cryptography economics and computer science and so before we get into that i also wanted to explain the the second analogy so the second analogy is very interesting around 600 years ago there was this uh, there was this island called the yap islands 
and their form of currency was a huge stone. It was called the rye stone. And the way they interacted and transacted this stone is very interesting. So this stone, first of all, is actually huge and it was heavy. And so it needed like 10 men to actually carry a stone. And so how do they transact um, these stones? They devised a very clever system. So assume that me and Aniket wanted to transact and he and we were both on the, on the island. I was buying his phone for two stones. So then I would go into the middle of the town and I'd say, guys, the two stones that are next to my house, I am now giving it to Aniket. But instead of me actually going in and moving those stones physically, it would be kept there. But all the people who are present in the middle of the island or in the middle of the town and are listening to this transaction, they are all recording this transaction in their notebook. And as transactions happen, all these transactions are recorded in hundreds of different notebooks. And therefore you have a a consistent and auditable ledger of transactions. And this is very, very important. Why? Because let's say in two days time, I wanted to go back and say, guys, the, the two stones that I had next to my house, I now want to transact it. I want to buy something. Everyone will tell me, no, wait, you can't do that because you had already sent it to Aniket. So therefore it makes it very hard to actually hack into the system. Right. Traditionally, if I wanted to change the database and records of a bank, I would just need to hack into the bank's database. That's one database. But imagine on this island, they had a thousand databases, a.k.a. a thousand inhabitants, right, who each had the same record of transactions. If I wanted to hack into it, I wouldn't need to hack into every single ledger on that island. And if you were to think about it, if 200 books, let's say 200 of these ledgers were burnt in a fire, then it's okay that you have 800 left, right? Everyone could look back at the rest of the, the ledgers that are in place in the island. And so what you have is something where uh, we actually had the concept of Bitcoin and blockchain many years ago being implemented uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a primitive way. But now how can you sort of scale that? To the world and this is where bitcoin really comes in and it's kind of the same thing but obviously it uses um, advanced cryptography and a clever incentivization to ensure that not only the double spending is solved but the network becomes more secure and the security comes from the nodes that are in the in the Bitcoin system. So the nodes in the Bitcoin system, you could think of it as a computer. And these computers are like the people in the Yap Islands who record the transactions. So when I send Anika to Bitcoin, that transaction is recorded by each computer. Each computer sees if I have that one Bitcoin in my wallet, which is a set of private and public keys, which we'll go into a bit later. And then they check if the if the wallet that I own does actually have that one Bitcoin. Everyone gives it a tick and says, yes, this transaction is valid. You have something called the miners who process this transaction. And what I mean by process, they go one step above the nodes. They actually try and solve a very hard mathematical puzzle, um, which we don't want to get into now. But they, they essentially compete to process the transactions. And the reason why they compete is because they get Bitcoins in reward. And this is all part of the, of the game 
um, of the rule set that Satoshi has devised. So Satoshi in his white paper said that there'll be 21 million Bitcoins in existence and they are released according to a schedule. And the, the schedule determines the rewards to these miners. So when these miners are processing transactions, they process a batch of transactions every 10 minutes. Once those transactions are processed by a specific miner who actually solves the mathematical puzzle, then they get the, um, the, the Bitcoins in reward. And like in the example in the Rhystones, if one node or computer is gone, it's okay. There are other nodes out there who are recording the transactions in the, um, in the blockchain and who have the history of the transactions in the blockchain. And so instead of really like, I really don't want to delve too much into it. I've already been going um, on for too long. But the idea that I just really want to leave you guys with is that it's better to collaborate rather than cheat the network. And if somebody wants to control the Bitcoin network, which is also known as a 51% attack, they would need to spend at current prices around $4 billion to attack the network. But why would somebody do that? If people knew that the Bitcoin network was going to be attacked, then everyone would sell their Bitcoins. And this attacker would spend all this money in vain. And to sum up Bitcoin and more broadly, the blockchain, one of my favorite quotes in the space um, is this, why trust Bitcoin or more specifically, why trust the technology that makes Bitcoin possible? In short, because you don't have to assume everyone's honest, yet it still gets them to follow the rules. And so Satoshi devised these rules and till now the Bitcoin network hasn't really been hacked and it's because why would anyone hack it? They would lose money in the process. So in a nutshell, um, that's how Bitcoin originally started and what, what, it, what it really is. Yeah, rightly said, Ahmed. And uh, another very important aspect of Bitcoin is that it's open sourced. It's yes. something that everyone can see. It's not like a few people sitting in closed rooms recording stuff manually and doing your transactions. Uh, so this is the best point of Bitcoin is that there's so so much transparency in this entire ecosystem that uh, so there's no no chance for any errors because it's if it's all present on the blockchain and uh, everyone can see any transaction happening uh, right from the inception. So it's quite funny, right? You can still see the first transaction that hap ever happened on Bitcoin. And we probably don't even know like what when the money or US the bill was started and like who did the first transaction over there. So the first Bitcoin transaction is still available. And I think anyone, even in the next 10 years, 20 years, anyone can see how the blockchain got started. So... This is another uh, element that adds more trust and uh, uh, sustainability to the blockchain ecosystem. Absolutely. And so to, to just further expand on, on the, the blockchain and to clear any misconceptions, uh, Bitcoin is an implementation of the blockchain. So the blockchain is the technology that underpins Bitcoin and the blockchain essentially is a distributed ledger which is shared by many parties but not one single party controls and once a transaction is is done and it's transparent to the network it's very hard for it to actually be reversed 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think we talked a lot about Bitcoin, but apart from what we have talked, uh, people uh, have a lot of misconceptions about Bitcoin as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and like people just treat Bitcoin as, as a scam and a lot of people still do and think that it's not going to last uh, uh, very long. But of course, we are at very early stage of this technology and uh, in the beginning, of course, it's expected that everything comes with the uh, side effect and uh, Bitcoin also had many events that uh, led to many preconceived notions among people that this is something that cannot be trustworthy. Uh, so it's been 10 years and there have been many events like this. So I remember uh, the most common example uh, that most common event that occurred uh, in the Bitcoin history was the Silk Road. Uh, so it was more like an e-commerce website that was mainly used to sell drugs. And yeah. Eventually it got, uh, got shattered by the government. Uh, but this event is still uh, remembered as one of the darkest moments in Bitcoin history. Uh, when one of the technologies at its early stage, there are a lot of uh, bad players in the industry that try to manipulate it. But moving forward... It's definitely prone to corruption. Exactly. And yeah, exactly. And moving forward, I know there's a lot of scope in the industry and already there have been so many improvements uh, to clear all these loopholes. But we have a long way to go, and uh, yeah, all these scams and all these events that happen, they, this like just gonna go down eventually, as uh, people are getting more aware about the technology and what technology can actually do to us to change our world. Yeah, no, it's funny you mention that, that analogy regarding the internet because um, many people actually use new technologies to to see how they can actually manipulate it and take advantage and the internet can be used for good and bad and bitcoin is kind of the same it can be used for good and bad exactly. and so even the same thing with money laundering as well money laundering is is one of one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that people have about bitcoin because it was seen that bitcoin um, is currently being used for money laundering, whereas in actuality, it's uh, it's actually become very hard to use Bitcoin for for money laundering, um, according according to um, reports by the HM Treasury and also some researchers um, um, a few months ago. Due to the nature of public blockchains and the need to cash out to fiat, cryptocurrency is just easier to monitor and they've seen that it's actually easier to launder money with cash as opposed to Bitcoin. Because essentially, if somebody tries to launder money with Bitcoin, then the the perpetrator will need to go and cash it out. How would they go cash it out? You would typically go to an exchange. And most exchanges would need to, would need to know your, your name and um, take you through the whole KYC process. process. Yeah. Exactly. Having said that, doesn't mean that uh, Bitcoin wasn't used for money laundering. Yeah, exactly. As you must be seeing daily in the news that all the people that try to use Bitcoin, some sort of illegal activities, they're getting exposed by the government because because of the transparent nature of the Bitcoin. So, like, of course, recently I was watching news and there was some 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 guy in Thailand who who got exposed and who used Bitcoin for money laundering. 
but as Ahmed said that, of course, if you, if you use Bitcoin, you have to cash it out. And when you cash it out, uh, you need to reveal your identity because that's the pretty, pretty basic norms of all the exchanges. So it's getting way harder for all these people to use Bitcoin for money laundering. Yeah, and and one one more thing to actually add to this conversation is uh, the, the 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 big misconception that when when Bitcoin gets hacked, and typically the article would say that there have been bitcoins oh, stolen yeah. from an exchange, and so what tends to happen is that a lot of people would think that exchange that that Bitcoin has become hacked and that it's it's easy for for people to rob my bitcoins if I were to buy them. But in actuality, an exchange, a cryptocurrency exchange, if you were to, which is a marketplace for people to buy and sell cryptocurrencies, it kind of acts like a bank. You entrust your crypto assets with the exchange. And so they hold the, uh, the, 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 your, your cryptocurrencies for you. And so if the cryptocurrency exchange does not have good security measures, then they are more uh, more vulnerable to attack. And so it's more an attack on the exchange, a hack on the exchange rather than a hack on the Bitcoin network itself, right? And this is where the subject of private keys and public keys come in and where the, the importance of owning um, the private key yourself becomes um, very, very important. Yeah, and yeah, the crux of this can be said that it's, uh, we, we won't recommend anyone to keep their assets on exchanges because uh, uh, right now it's also it's it's very similar going to be to the banks like trusting a third party to control to take control of your assets. So it's better to keep everything on the hard wallets and the cool storage that uh, that will give you full freedom of. Uh, you for for like storing your assets and you will be the one who will be the in charge of private keys instead of someone else controlling it for you so so um anika because like you worked at binance before could you sort of for those who are new to to the space give that give a distinction between the private and public key and also the 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 cold storage that you mentioned what what is that exactly yeah so exactly so uh, so when you store uh, your assets on any exchange, it is very similar to your st- storing money in a bank. So a Bitcoin wallet has two sort of keys. As one is the public key. This is very similar to the bank account that you get whenever you open a yeah, account in any bank. And uh, other is a private key that like something a code that you have that this only you're going to have to access the bank account that you have it. And here also it's a private key that only you going to be in charge of it, that you can, uh, you know, operate your assets whenever you want to. So, when, so it's like an email address and a password. Exactly. It's more like that. So when you store this, uh, on an exchange that the password is with, with exchange, it's not. Okay. What you have is the public address and, uh, another password that the exchange issues you and you, you can take full control of that password to operate that account just for you. It's, it's like, uh, the password of the email is going to be with exchange and exchange is going to give you another password to operate that password. 
So it's something like giving money to any any normal bank. Though exchanges have have increased the security and they claim that okay they're the best place to secure your tokens, but in the end you're doing the exact same thing that you were doing in the traditional world that trusting someone else to take care of your money. To to recap that, if I want to be in charge of my own digital assets, I would essentially need to hold the private keys. Exactly. I would need to keep that password essentially and not share it with anyone and keep that locked up, Keep probably put it into a, in a Swiss vault because that private key, um, which is corresponding to a public key, um, holds a certain amount of Bitcoins and can access that certain amount of Bitcoins. Rightly, rightly said, Ahmed. That private key should be the one. Uh, you should be the one who's the owner of the private key, or some someone else taking care of that. So, talking about private keys and wallets, I wanted to to tell everyone about this really interesting press release that came from Blockchain.info. So, Blockchain.info they're a a free crypto wallet provider. They're one of the largest in the market, and they started around 2013, and now. Um, they have released this press release saying that they have around 25 million wallets that has been downloaded through their application today, which is a pretty huge milestone, especially when it comes to actually analyzing the adoptability of Bitcoin and seeing whether it, whether or not it could go mainstream. And they, they're also boasting that at 25 million wallets, they now have a larger community than that of TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab and Ali Bank combined. So they've made a bit of um, history there, I I suppose. What do you think of this article, Anika? So talking about wallets and how they were in 2017, let's go way, way before 2017, in 2013, it was just around 100,000 wallets. And coming to 2017, it went to 10 million. And see, within just one year, it went up to 25 million wallets. Uh, this number is highly commendable. And, but it doesn't mean that if we have 25 million wallets, there are 25 million different users using the wallet. So this thing, we have to clearly understand that there can be one user with multiple wallets as well. Uh, but having said that, doesn't mean that the adoptability of Bitcoin is, is not booming. It's, of course, it's more than 1.5x in less than one year. So talking about private keys and we're seeing that private keys getting lost, we haven't seen any sort of insurance mechanism for wallets. Let's say if I die today, right? And and I have my wallet and I have it. So my wallet is having tons of money, but no one is going to be able to access it. So do we have some solution for this prospect that, okay, if I die and if I have a wallet with me, but the wallet is going to be useless, right? The only way someone like, let's say my family member or my mom wants to access the, the, the money from it or the Bitcoins from it is, is when if I had given private key to her. So moving forward with the wallets, uh, so is there anything? So that, think- that, actually, that actually reminds me of a story where somebody had, I think 10,000 Bitcoins on his, stored on his laptop um, I think around 2011, 2012. Yeah. And he, he threw away the laptop because Bitcoins back then weren't worth anything. And he actually went back to the same garbage site because he didn't have the password. 
And to, the only way to retrieve them is to go back to his laptop and load up the, the client that he had, which also had the password saved up as well. I don't know if he retrieved those Bitcoins yet or not, but that, that's a pretty significant bunch. So like, like you said, it's very, very important to, to, to own your, your own private keys. Uh, and this is sort of where the cold storage um, element comes in, where you're able to store your private keys in, a, in an offline environment. Yeah, and moving forward with the Bitcoin, I think uh, what we have seen so far in most of the debates that people do over that is the scalability issue for Bitcoin. Uh, so right now, uh, to to complete a transaction, it takes you 10 minutes and you can just do the transaction in milliseconds if you're using Visa or any sort of digital wallet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, this is one of the major roadblock that Bitcoin is having uh, in terms of mass adoptability. Uh, Ahmed, would you like to put more light on that? Yeah, so scaling has, become, it, it has been a really huge issue in the past three years within the Bitcoin community. And like Anik had said, uh, the, the the issue with Bitcoin is is that the processing speed is seven transactions a second versus Visa, which can process sixty thousand transactions a second. And essentially, if Bitcoin is meant to be this global digital currency where people could use their Bitcoins to buy coffee, then it would be very difficult if millions and millions of people are using a Bitcoin network because then the network will be clogged up, and then the processing and transaction time of Bitcoins would become slower if many people are using it. And we've seen that happen actually uh, many months ago and also um, in many other instances where because of uh, many people using Bitcoin, the, the network has clogged up and and the transaction fees for, um, for sending a Bitcoin went as high as $60. And this has become a huge, huge talking point within the Bitcoin community where you've had various camps saying, this is how we should scale Bitcoin. This is how we should not scale Bitcoin. We should keep it like this. We should create a Bitcoin 2.0. And there have been many, many different ideas. But the thing is with Bitcoin, because it's open source, right? Anyone could come in and change the code to how they see fit. And then they would create an entirely new network, right? And this network couldn't affect the original Bitcoin network but they could essentially go in to the open source Bitcoin software that Satoshi Nakamoto created in 2009 and just tweak whatever they like from it. So you know how Bitcoin is 21 million coins? You could essentially go and change that. And one implementation actually happened um, of this Litecoin uh, was an implementation from Bitcoin where they changed the the transaction speed and also the number of coins. I think the number of coins in Litecoin is around 84 million. And so a pivotal moment actually happened in 2000, last year, the 1st of August of 2017, where um, the Bitcoin network forked. And essentially what that, what that basically means is there was a, a group who thought that Bitcoin was too slow and that the blocks in the blockchain, the memory of the, the amount of transactions that could be stored into the blockchain should increase. And therefore, they said that the memory of, of the blockchain should increase as well, so that it could include more transactions and therefore increase throughput. 
And so as they they change parts of the code of the Bitcoin software to ensure that it would match how they wanted it to be. And because of this, they went off and forked from the Bitcoin blockchain. So what that basically means is from when Bitcoin network started in 2009, all the way to the 1st of August, all the transactions were the same in the Bitcoin network. But from the 1st of August, the Bitcoin cash fork went off separately and began its own sort of blockchain. But the Bitcoin network, the, the, the original Bitcoin blockchain remained unaffected and has continued. This has sparked a lot of contention within the Bitcoin community as well. But because Bitcoin is open source, anyone could come in and fork. And what, what has that meant? That's meant a lot of forks yeah. have been happening, Ten right? Forks happening after that. I mean, Bitcoin Cash was something people were waiting for quite some time. And it was uh, done in a proper way with proper consensus mechanism. And everyone was taken on board. But this had its own side effects. So once it's so it was the first time it fogged. So it gave room for other speculators and people looking for some quick cash to just fork the Bitcoin. So Ahmed, how many how many how many folks did we see in 2017? It was like more than ten folks, right? Oh, there's so many. I just remember the ones which had amazing names. Yeah. There was Bitcoin God, you have Bitcoin Diamond, you have Bitcoin Gold. And yeah, I don't know that there are so many other ones. People holding Bitcoins, actually, they were getting free Bitcoin on the exchanges, right? Many exchanges were supporting all these folks. But Yeah, and, and so there's this one thing, actually, we've got to mention. So what does this actually mean? So when forking from the Bitcoin network, so for example, when the Bitcoin cash fork happened, what that essentially meant was, remember how I said that from the first of, um, from, from when Bitcoin started in 2009 all the way to the 1st of August, the blockchain is the same. So if I had five Bitcoins before the, the fork, and then after the fork, what would happen? I would, it would basically mean I would also have five Bitcoin cash Bitcoin. coins as well. So that essentially meant whoever had Bitcoins before the fork had the same number of Bitcoin cash tokens after the fork. And so now Bitcoin Cash is trading around 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 $826, but it has reached highs of $4,000. And so imagine imagine that, right? So that basically means you, you people got free money. So imagine you had 10 Bitcoins and you managed to you get 10 Bitcoin Cash and then you sold all of them off because there was market demand for it, then you know, people just got free money, right? And I think that 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 was maybe one of the reasons why a lot of these forks were happening because people thought, okay, if Bitcoin Cash forked successfully and it had this amount of this amount of traction in its price, then maybe our forks with uh, with these different implementations and changes could also reach to the same stage. But I don't think it's been going fairly well for these for these folks. Yeah, it all ended. All the folks ended, and I think folks were one of the major reason to cause all the price wars and price speculation in terms of Bitcoin, like crazy up and down, because it is not like few dollars that you receive after a fork. 
And as Ms. Amos was talking about Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Cash opened with around $300 and it went up to like $1,000. So it's, it's like if you're holding maybe like five Bitcoins, you'll get around 5,000 US dollars just for free, just for holding the Bitcoin. So uh, apart from this, we had like different different folks. And because of all this activities and all the speculation, Bitcoin like just broke crazy record in terms of pricing. What, what did we see in October to December? Like in a spam of just three months, uh, we we saw Bitcoin reaching to 20,000 US dollars and just like in, in three months. And this is something we, we cannot imagine, right? Exactly. It's, it's been absolutely crazy. But enough from these dark moments and these changing moments surrounding Bitcoin. I, I definitely say one of the one of the highlights, like we mentioned before, was definitely the, the fact that there have been many Bitcoin um, wallet downloads. Essentially, people are wanting to maybe use it, whether it's for speculation or buying for coffee, who knows, but people are being aware of, of Bitcoin and actually trying to play with it, trying to use it and trying to see how it works. And that's probably a good thing because when people download a wallet, they actually try and understand the concept of okay, a private key, a public key, and and how that actually works. So th- that could could be a good thing. So when blockchain.info, when they announced that 25 million wallets have been created, it basically could signal to the fact that there have been a lot of new people coming into the space, and that is an education process for them as well. But aside from that, looking at regulations as well, 106 countries have declared Bitcoin legal. Um, and one of them which have gone sort of one step further, for example, Japan, which has been the only country to declare Bitcoin as legal tender. So essentially, basically means that I could actually use Bitcoin in stores, in physical stores to go and buy stuff with it, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, apart from Japan, there have been countries where Bitcoin is actually totally banned. Uh, for example, China and India, where they are not used as legal tenders. But uh, I still remember one of the events hap- happening in Indian uh, government uh, side, where which had a very dreadful impact on the society was demonetization. So, like, of course, Indian government uh, uh, totally banned uh, Indian rupee notes uh, in November 2016. And and people were just shocked and people just had sleepless night thinking of what, what they're going to do with their all the money that they're having because it, it became just paper notes. Uh, people tried buying properties, uh, people trying converting into jewelries or gold, but few people also tried converting into bitcoins. And at that time, I think it was the, the prime reason of uh, the growth of Bitcoin in Indian economy or Indian, uh, the acceptance of Bitcoin in Indian culture, you can say that. So, so Bitcoin, of course, it has a good impact in the society as well. When events like this happen, uh, when events like Venezuela happen, where the entire economy is just so messed up and people have no, no faith in their own currency or any currency present in, in the world. So, of course, this is where Bitcoin uh, actually becomes so so valuable to the people when their own government is not able to actually uh, nurture their needs. 
Absolutely. And I, I actually remember reading The Age of Cryptocurrency. They mentioned a very interesting use case of Bitcoin, actually, where there were a group of writers in Afghanistan. They were all girls. And because of the culture in Afghanistan and the outdated banking system that they had, it meant that girls could not have their own bank accounts. And so when these girls were writing articles for uh, an American newspaper, they had no way of actually paying these girls uh, money. They, they thought it was just very hard to actually wire money to Afghanistan. And so they actually resorted to sending bitcoins to these girls. And it basically allowed these girls to have financial freedom and to also for them to manage their own finances as well. It also allowed for the, for the company in the US to transfer money to Afghanistan cheaper and faster. And so that, that is something I think that is very commendable. Well, that's, that's uh, something I was not very aware of. They're talking about impacts having on the society, we already have seen many events, certain things that could have been possible only because of Bitcoin. And moving forward, I think we have, we have a long way to go and we should think of it as just the beginning of a new era. Absolutely. I mean, the... The future seems it's going to be very, very interesting. Many people have different price predictions for Bitcoin, saying that it will become as high as $250,000 by 2020, or even $50,000 by the end of this year. Guys, this is not financial advice, but these are price predictions from certain commentators. And you also have on one hand where you, you have people saying that Bitcoin will die, die a saint and that you will have... Um, other coins, you know, who are able to solve the problems that Bitcoin have had, and that will be able to replace Bitcoin in, in the future. So I guess it's going to become so, so interesting to see how, how, how this all plays out, actually. I think that's all we have for today. I mean, we could stay up all night talking about Bitcoin and speculate on the future. But this is, this is the end of the first episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. And Niket, where can people find out more um, about you? How can they contact you? Yeah, yeah, guys. So, of course, we have, as you can see in the bottom, we have all our social media channels and our email IDs. So, also our Telegram, Telegram usernames. And I, I think Telegram is just the new email in, in crypto industry. So, you can contact us anytime. Uh, we are almost awake uh, 24 hours. Uh, that's or there's a, comment, <laughs> there's a comment section also where if you you can like write comments on how you like the the podcast what we what needs to be improved and other other comments we are we, we're gonna be like eagerly waiting for your comments yeah and see you soon we will be back next week with another very interesting topic for you yes guys please make sure to leave a review and share it with your friends and family and tell people about it it will allow people to find us easier on iTunes. Yes, like Anika said, you can find me as well on, on Telegram, on Twitter. And thank you very much. See you soon.